Last week, in case you were unaware of it, was Easter. So we celebrated resurrection, man. I mean, we talked a little bit last week about Jesus, who was he? Uh, and he's, like I said, if you ask uh, people on the street, everybody knows who Jesus was, but do they really know who Jesus was? And so I provoked thought, and um, it reminded me a little this week. Uh, we, uh, Pastor Paul conducted a memorial yesterday and did a fantastic job for one of our congregants that was also a part of faith community for years, and I even knew her way back in the early days, several churches before that as well, named Barbara Brandt. She went on to be with Jesus. Are you ready? On Easter Day. Only Barbara Brandt could pull that off, as I told them yesterday. That woman was relentless. You may have seen her. She was uh, not doing too well. Once we launched Church of the Red Door, she had been struggling for a while. But that woman was absolutely relentless, and only Barbara Brandt could pull off not only being, you know, going to be with Jesus on Resurrection Day, but also April Fool's Day. Only Barbara Brandt could pull that, you know, that. It's not a trifecta. I don't know what it is when it's two things, but uh, amazing, amazing. And, but the life that she lived, she demonstrated Jesus. Uh, many, many here, uh, we, we started talking about all the connections that she had with so many different people, and she just was a school teacher that taught down in Mecca. Just, just a school teacher, no much more than a school teacher. She had a profound impact, and that's an impact we can all have. But to have the impact that Barbara had, to have, to let Jesus have access to your life, like Barbara allowed access, she became a living Sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, she became a living sacrifice, and as a result, Jesus, the precious name of Jesus, that last worship song, that name of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, lived in and through her and loved the world, loved this Coachella Valley. Do you want that said about you? That's my question to you this morning. At the end of your life, what will matter? You know, there were people there, then they were celebrating her life. There was a, it was an amazing thing, there was a Young man, not so young anymore, and he said, when I, she was my fifth grade school teacher. Uh, Hispanic young man, and came, and he, he said, we went on, and the impact she had on my life. He couldn't even get through it without weeping. Now, do you want to have that kind of impact on other people's lives? That's what we've been talking about through this series of things that we're talking about, which is, um, <laughs> which is about the life of David. Times and seasons in your life, are you aware? Do you recognize that there is preparation and that there is a, a gauntlet to walk of sorts before you become effective like Barbara was. You just don't just fall into that. Is that. And that's what we've been learning through the life of David over these last few weeks. So if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We actually left Samuel in 1 Samuel 22. We left Sam, uh, excuse me, Samuel, David. We left David in a very precarious situation. He had lied he was on the run, he had lied, and as a result, 85 priests in the, pretty much the entire city of Nob had been wiped out because of his lie. Now, he's just going from here to here to here. God is breaking him. He's making mistakes. Uh, he's, he's really struggling, and yet God is doing something profound in his life. What's important for you to understand is that God will work with you, and this is going to be the tenor of this message this morning, God will work with you through places that you want to take revenge, he'll work with you uh, alongside you, places and times that you may be running from God or running from his will, he's still, he's still there with you, and then he's obviously going to show up most powerfully when you are resting in him. So that's kind of our 3 prong thing this morning. Uh, revenge, 
Running and resting, that's what we're going to see in these four or five chapters here in the book of Samuel. So 1 Samuel chapter 24, I want you to look at here at verse 3 and 5. He had run to the caves of Engedi or Engedi, depending on, and it's pronounced both ways. Uh, 1 Samuel 24, now let's look at verse 3 through 5. It says, and he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. Now remember, he's running from Saul, and Saul is now in hot pursuit of David. And it says, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, you, I guess we could call that comic relief, right? <laughs> I don't know what that is. But actually, the Hebrew word for that word relief is that he covered his feet. So some theologians have said, no, he was just went in there to take a rest. No, he went in there to, literally to relieve himself, and he would disrobe, and the robes would fall down and cover his feet. That's really what that means. And so, yeah, he was in there using the restroom in a cave. You can't, you, only the Bible can come up with stuff like this. I mean, you know, if you're trying to elevate the Bible to some moral, you know, platitudes, no, it's much more than that. And that's what we're trying to get to. It's a narrative about life, about your life, about the re- realities of your life. God knows exactly what you're going through right now. So he went in to relieve himself. Now, David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Now, this is a very interesting story. It's so loaded. I mean, we could spend weeks, really weeks, looking at this. I know you're saying that this just seems so innocuous. It doesn't seem like a big deal. It is a huge deal. This lack of a vengeful heart, well, it's not that he didn't have emotions. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he, he was running from Saul. Here's a man that he really... He saved Saul. I mean, they would, be, they would have been, quite frankly, they would have been slaves. All of Israel would have been slaves to the Philistines if he'd have lost, or if they would have lost to Goliath. We saw that a number of weeks back. David is due what he's due, and now he's being chased down, and Saul's trying to kill him. And he knows he's the one that's been anointed by God. He knows it. So why didn't he kill him? All of his friends, now's the time. He's right in your hands. See, God's giving you, giving him right into your hands. And you can shame him in a most significant way. You can wipe him out while he's taking relief in a dark cave out in the middle of nowhere. David, now's the time. He snuck up behind him. Now, if, you've, if you're going to go with us to Israel, we'll actually go to these very caves. And there's actually some streams that run down through there. So there's probably loud enough in the cave that it wasn't as quiet as you would imagine a cave normally to be. And so it's not hard for me to imagine that he actually snuck up and was able to cut off the edge of his robe and while Saul was completely unaware of it. But why did he do that? And then why, does, why did his conscience bother him? Why didn't he kill him, number one? And then why did his conscience bother him? Well, David would go on to say, look, this is the Lord's anointed. This is for the Lord to do. This is not my task. Now, I, I got to tell you, uh, revenge is probably one of the most debilitating social ills that we have in all the world. Revenge. That guy dissed me. You see it all the time. Now, sometimes we in the more, you know, kind of a culture like Palm Springs and everybody kind of sanitized behind sanitized walls and all these kinds of things. And then we point the finger at the gangs who will, you know, there's a drive-by shooting and then it's just 
tit for tat, retaliatory stuff, back and forth and back and forth. And you see the numbers, even in Chicago, and you see those kinds of numbers, and you just go, how do those people do that kind of thing? How are they? I mean, it's just back and forth and back and forth. Is it really any different than behind the walls of the country clubs here in the Coachella Valley? We do it in different ways. But through lawsuits and through retaliatory language and taking vengeance, we can, you can... You can disrobe somebody very easily, can't you? Just by slandering them and taking them to task or everybody's a judge and everybody has an opinion and everybody feels totally entitled to take everybody to task on everything. And you can, you can strike revenge at the heart of someone by taking their character down about three or four notches. But in doing so, you damage your soul. You damage your soul. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21. Listen to what Paul says. He says, never take your own revenge. I don't know how you can be more clear. Never take your own revenge. Now, I I want you to think about something. Even right now, there may be somebody or some something even from 20, 30, 40 years ago, and uh, you're still plotting their revenge. Maybe somebody made fun of you when you were in high school and you're waiting for your 50th reunion because you saw some pictures of them not long ago and they don't look so good. And you cannot wait to get there and show off your svelte figure and how you're going to put them back in their place and how you've made it. And then those guys, well, that guy, he lost his job a bunch of years ago, gained about 85 pounds. And I can't wait to get back and to run. Now, we harbor these secret things, but there's something deeper here. It's a soul illness And David understood it. Was he perfect? Not at all. Never take your own revenge. Beloved, leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Now, why would this be God's territory? Why would revenge be God's territory? And is God interested in taking revenge all the time? No, God showed us through the person of Jesus, his own son. He showed us that his his task and his desire is not for revenge. In fact, uh, the prophet Isaiah says it is his unusual task when he has to bring wrath, an unusual task for God. God wants to proceed in love in your life. Occasionally, justice has to prevail. Another reason that God, God's the only one that really can be the judge in life is because he knows all the details. You, you have sketchy details at best. Even at the end of a long trial, maybe a trial that's been, you know, taken out six months with all arguments and counter arguments and all the experts and all the forensic scientists and everything brought to bear, and you come in and we still uh, get it wrong oftentimes. You hear about this all the time. I read about it the other day. Somebody spent uh, 30 years in prison. And they were innocent the entire time. Happens all the time. Look, you think, do you think you have, and even if you did have 100% of the facts, which you never will, do you have the kind of compassion that God moves in? Do you, you have that kind of love towards someone? It's not for us to take revenge. Jesus said it. He was clear. Don't judge your brother. And then if you do, if I do call you to speak into someone's life, and I wouldn't call that judgment, I would call that moving and discerning love. When you see maybe a brother in sin, go to him privately or her privately. And if they don't listen, then just take another couple witnesses with you. And then finally, after they really don't listen, then you have, to, you have a problem. You have, may have an issue inside the church. So then you may have to bring them before the church. But see, God is all the time waiting, looking for the opportunity to extend mercy and love He's still just, though. Let him take, let him do that. Now, do you realize how revolutionary this idea is? Pray for your enemies? Really? Jesus? I mean, that is just wild. 
I can't even imagine praying for my enemies. I'm just trying not to hate them. You don't, Jeff, you don't know what they did in my life. Maybe there was rape in your past. Maybe there was horrific business, just horrific business deals that went bad where you just got raked over the coals. Maybe your own parents, maybe, maybe somebody beat you. Maybe, you know, I, the, the, the atrocities out there are numerous. Jesus says, and Paul, the spirit of Jesus through Paul, never, ever take your own revenge. Now that is world shaking to the core and then he goes on, and if he stops, he says, no. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. In doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And by the way, the burning coals on his head, they say, oh, this is the way. Now I can really plot revenge by doing it the religious way. I'll heap burning coals by, by praying for him and giving him a glass of water. Here you go. I know, I know what you've been doing. Here you are. Here you are. Here's a glass of water, and you heap burning coals on his head. Oh, now I've got him. Now I can, and you're enacting revenge. No, those burning coals come from the power of the Holy Spirit, and your intent in the end is always to move someone from where they are closer to Jesus, even your enemy. That's the crazy, wild, insane, but marvelous message of the gospel. Jesus died for those who sin. And I, as Paul said, and I'll say the same, and I was chief among sinners. It was easy for him to talk about mercy because he had experienced mercy. 1 Samuel chapter 25, the very next chapter, we have a very interesting story. Uh, I'm fascinated with this story, quite frankly. I, I just think it is such a great story. Um, it was a guy named Nabal. And Nabal, the very name Nabal means fool. And this guy played the fool. And Nabal had a wife, and not only was she extraordinarily beautiful, but her wisdom and her, her everything exceeded her beauty. Nabal did not deserve Abigail. Well, in those days, it was not unusual. You had a, essentially a lot of marauding bands that would come out, of bands of like the Amalekites and others that would come in. And they would sweep down on those shepherds who were watching over the sheep, and they would wipe them out and then carry away plunder. It happened all the time. And so down in the, especially in the wilderness areas where many of these sheep were uh, residing and these shepherds were out in the fields, uh, and, and also where Nabal was, uh, who was actually a Carmelite up in the northern part, uh, these marauding bands would come in. So there was kind of an unwritten rule, not two difference maybe than a waiter who's waiting your table. Uh, you don't have to tip, but you really should if there's good service. And David, now on the run, and his uh, 600 mighty men, what happened is that they would come down, and they would protect uh, Nabal's sheep and their shepherds during the course of the year. And then at harvest time, it was uh, just common practice for those men to come down and say, hey, look, it's, it's gone well with your shepherds. You haven't lost any. You haven't lost any sheep. And, uh, you know, now you've got this great produce. And, and Nabal was very wealthy. I mean, he was extraordinarily wealthy. I mean, he was, you know, uh, way up there. He had lots and lots of sheep and animals and, and everything. And David and his men had watched over them faithfully and, and driven off these marauding bands. And it had been a great year. 
And so David sent down a messenger and said, hey, Nabal, here's what I'd like for you to do. If you don't mind, uh, as is kind of our custom, we've watched over, your shepherds have fared well. Uh, give us a little, I mean, share in the booty here, right? I mean, this is good times. These are, this is harvest time. Give us a little bit of, give us some stuff we need to be provided for. Nabal's response, greed and stupidity, absolute stupidity. Who is David? Whose son is he? Why should I give my stuff to him? I mean, who is this guy? And who is he hanging out with? He's hanging out with a bunch of nerdy wells. I'm not going to give you a thing. Messenger returns, and David, uh, in this moment, decides, after not exacting revenge on Saul, all of a sudden, this revenge bug grabs him by the soul and begins to choke the life out of him spiritually. And he grabbed his men and he said, we are going to go wipe them out. And the charge came. Can you hear the footsteps of those horses coming over that last hill? I mean, these are, Nabal had no way. These were David and his mighty men. These are some of the best warriors now. I mean, these are, these are incredible. And coming over that hill, I mean, it feels like a Hollywood movie. You can hear that. <laughs> And they're coming down the hill, and uh, guess who intervenes? Well, God intervenes, and he uses a woman of wisdom named Abigail. Abigail didn't even go to Nabal. He would have said, absolutely not. She gathered her. She heard it through some of the, maid, uh, so through some of the servants, what Nabal had said. She gathered up 200 loaves of bread, 200 cakes and figs, and some, two jugs of wine and a bunch of other stuff, and she said she's going to meet David and head him off at the pass. Because not only was he going to take Nabal's life, chances were he was probably going to take all of their lives because this was an angry man. David had just given himself over to revenge. But God stepped in, powerful. Verse 32 and 33 say, David now meets Abigail, and David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed be your discernment. And blessed blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Let me ask you a question. Has God ever done that in your life? Has he interceded for you where you were on the warpath and somehow, someway, God stepped in and stayed your hand? Do you know how many people are in prisons all over the world today because something happened and they just, it was, it was just a moment. I mean, this happens in road rage and all kinds of things. Just one momentary a loss of your mind, and that's really what anger is. It's temporary insanity, and just anger overtakes you, and you just you just fly off. And, and you know maybe, you're, but if you grew up around that kind of thing, and you 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 were packing, or you lived in Texas, everybody's packing in Texas, right? And you're you're packing, and all of a sudden it's just one move from what's in my heart to right here, and boom, and your whole life changes. That happens every single day. Our prisons are full of people who were right where David was, but look what God does. He comes down and he intercedes through Abigail. The rest of the story is amazing because Abigail goes back and goes back to tell Nabal, and guess where Nabal is? The fool is drunk. He's completely out of it. He's been partying. It's harvest time. He's been partying with his with his cronies, and he is just having the greatest time, and he is completely out of it. She waits till the next morning to tell him what's happened, and he gets up the next morning, uh, eyes all bloodshot and kind of puffy and kind of getting up and probably smelling like a, the cat drug it in, and, and Nabal gets up, and, and here's beautiful Abigail and says, you have no idea what was about to happen to you yesterday. 
And as she begins to tell him, I think we don't know exactly what happened, he probably had a stroke. And you, see, you can just probably feel the left side of his mouth or, you know, start to, you know, kind of begin to droop. And he begins to lose control of himself. It took about 10 days, but he died. And he died. He was just absolutely terrified. It hit him with the full force of what was about to happen to him. Abel was an absolute fool. Now, what does this mean for us? What relevance does this have for us? Look, do you take your own revenge? See, the spirit of Jesus in you will always move you away from the place of revenge and into the place of mercy, always. But we still live in the flesh, don't we? It may be great to say, I never have these impulses. I never have these emotions. I never have, let these have. Look, run with all your might away from what your flesh is telling you to do. See, that's part of what Church of the Red Door, any church community should be. We are an aspiring community. We aspire to be like Jesus. We aspire to, in some ways, hang on our, even though it could be figurative, obviously, hang on our cross when we're being persecuted and look down and say, Father, forgive them for they don't understand what they're doing. Do you get that? Is that what you're aspiring to or do you just not even think about it? You may be in the process even this morning and this may be, this very message may be your Abigail to stop you on the road to destruction. Oh, it may not put you in the penitentiary. You may not be actually plotting murder, but you're plotting something in your heart. You want to get back at somebody. And Jesus has said, let me fill you with the presence of my Holy Spirit and I will give you both the power and the intention to begin to actually emotionally care for the very person that's persecuting you. Look, when you do that, can I tell you, you change. Whether that person changes or not, whether that person ends up being Nabal, a fool, or an Abigail, a very discerning person, whoever this person is, and you may even find, you know what, it's probably 50-50 anyway. But if you can be gra- if you can be taken, the Abigail moment... You know, this is your moment. You have the revenge option. It's right there. Or you have the Abigail option. And this, this is morning. This very message could be your Abigail moment. Stop. Think about this for a second. And then you may look back at this very message one day, which is God's word to you through Jesus. I'm telling you, and listen, and you may just say exactly what David said. Blessed be you, and this would be the word. You have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Stop. Stop any vengeful thought. Put it to rest. It may have been something that's just inside you. You are blocked on your journey to maturity if you hold on to revenge. If you, want to vend, if you want to enact what is only God's rightful duty. Our call on the earth is to forgive and love and advance the gospel even in the midst of persecution. Jesus said you will in this life have tribulation. Through many tribulations that you enter the kingdom. Paul told Timothy, you know, uh, anyone who desires a godly life will be persecuted. Expect it. Don't don't let it catch you off guard. And if this is something that's been simmering in you for 30 years, give it to God this morning. This is your moment. And and then you praise God for giving you that insight in the spirit. 1 Samuel chapter 26, uh, we're not going to go into it, but again, guess what? Saul, by the way, at the end of that 
at the end of that moment in the cave, oh, David, you're the righteous one. I'm so sorry. You're, you're a gracious man. See, Saul, you think, oh, wow, a repentant heart. And then Saul turns right, up, right back around and starts chasing him again. See, Saul has all kinds of religious, outward-looking religious things, but the reality is his heart never changes. He never has, by the way, one of these moments, ever. He never has a moment where he's, oh, oh my gosh, bless you. He, it looks like it, but he never changes. David actually changes. He didn't, go, he, didn't, he didn't stop and then retreat and then go back and kill Nabal or take all of his stuff. No, that wasn't David's heart at all, but that Saul kept doing it. He was so duplicitous. He'd completely lost his identity. He was completely alienated from God, as we'll see in a minute, so much to the, so much to the point that uh, he, his life just descends into complete and utter chaos. David, although he had the same inclinations as Saul, when he was confronted with his sin, he repented. He turned around. That's the big difference between Saul and David. I mean, if you were to go down, and I've never done this, but actually make a list and say righteous acts of David and then, uh, and then righteous acts of Saul, you could probably get pretty close. Or just horrible sins of David and horrible sins of Saul. I think David might actually in some ways eclipse Saul in terms of the horror. The difference was the heart. One understood the journey that they were on and understood God and had a heart sensitive to God. And the other one, though, played playing religion. Oftentimes, Saul would play religion on the outside and sacrifice and do all the other things. But deep down, he was absolutely terrified and he was faithless, as we've seen. So do you take the revenge option? What about the running option? I want you now to go to 1 Samuel chapter 27. This is astonishing. Again, a picture of, you know, again, please understand, the Bible is not a book of just morals. Do you just please understand that? People think, well, you have a religious book of morals. Uh, you know, other people have, the, the Buddhists have theirs, the Hindus have theirs. Everybody has their, their dogma and their rules and their regulations. And a lot of them cross over. And a lot of people see kind of the golden rule and they say, all religions are basically the same. They all kind of have a kindness and do unto others and all that kind of principle. This is not a book of morals. It has moral understanding in it. It has deep wisdom understanding, especially in Proverbs and other places. It'll help you in your life. But this is primarily a narrative about how you walk a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Of course, that's going to be complicated. How in the world do you even understand God? How do you understand his ways? Through like the life of David. This is things that we're learning. But David makes mistake after mistake after mistake. It's insane. Listen to what he listen to. First Samuel chapter 27, first five verses here. So now he's he's running from Saul again. He's on the run. He, you know, should David have ever run, by the way? He was anointed king. I mean, it was already a done deal. Should he have just stayed where he was and then God would have intervened? But we always react, we often react to what we see, you know, and then we just take flight. You have anybody else in scripture that took flight? You had people running all the time. Adam and Eve sinned, and where they do? They ran and hid. Abraham got down. Okay, this is the land that I'm going to give you and your descendants. And through your descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. And then a famine would happen or something would happen or some enemies would come in. Abraham, they'd take off to Egypt. And people were constantly taking off. Naomi, little, there, was a, there was a famine in the land. She took off. She went to Moab, which is across the Jordan. People are constantly, and even the disciples in the New Testament, people constantly on the run. The disciples when Jesus, exactly as Zachariah had prophesied, when Jesus was going to the cross 
and they, they took him to Caiaphas' house, and they were started to interrogate him. Uh, the disciples fled, the Bible says. Just like Zachariah had promised, the sheep were scattered. We are just a running, scared people at times, aren't we? All of us, every one of us in here is running in some ways or has run from something at some time. Some call that God has on your life. Something. And typically what you do is you find yourself in positions of great compromise when you do that. Listen to what David's thinking is here. Verse 1 of chapter 27. It says, David said to himself, Now will I perish one day by the hand of Saul? Asking, well, let's see. Will I? Well, there is, now catch this. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. He's going to go back again. Remember last time we saw him? He went to Gath and, the, and Achish just goes, king, the king just said, who is this guy? Have I not got enough madmen already? This is unbelievable. And get this guy out of my presence. Now David's going to go back there again. He's on the run. Let me tell you something. Our flesh, when we don't like something, we just want to get to the other side, don't we? We just want to run, get out of here. You don't have to physically run to a different location, by the way. You can run to the refrigerator. You can run to the golf course. You can run to the office. You can run to your kids. You can run to your grandkids. You can run. You can just run. You know God wants you to do this right here, right now, and stick it out, but you just, we're just, we run. We just run. We're runners by nature. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. Really? This isn't in God's hands? This is about your running ability? So David arose and crossed over, and he and the 600 men were with him to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish of Gath, he and his men, each with his household. David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail. Oh, wait a minute, Abigail? I thought something. Is this the same Abigail? It's actually a great love story. I mean, Abigail actually got, even though a, a faulty man, not a perfect man, she got a king. She went from Nabal to a king just by wisdom. Pretty smart. It says, now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, if now I have found favor in your sight. Now, finding favor in the sight of the enemy, the arch enemy. Now, remember, Achish is a representative type for us to understand. This is like making, this is like creating a pact with Satan himself. Now, you understand, when we're looking back, again, just for you visitors, they were fighting a physical people trying to take possession of a physical land. We don't do that anymore. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. We don't kill people. We don't take physical land anymore to expand the kingdom of God. We do it through the Spirit. Our battle is against, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We are battling Satan. So as a type, he is going and making a pact with Satan himself. He says, if I found favor in your sight, you know, just give me a place in one of your cities in the country that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? He's making a pact with the devil. We, you know, it's just, we hear that all the time, don't you? Have you ever made a pact with the devil? Now, you may not literally had a conversation and said, Satan, you know, I'm really having a tough time here if you could help me out. I'm not suggesting you've had that kind of conversation, but by default, you're actually experiencing that. Maybe you're experiencing that something right now. You know you're not living in the very land and the place and the lane that God's called you. You are on the run. Maybe you've been on the run for God from 40 years, 30 or 40 years. Maybe your whole life. And in a sense, you've made a pact. Did you realize that, and by the way, gave him Ziklag, a place called Ziklag, which by just the meaning of Ziklag is winding. 
just a windy place, you know. You just you can make all kinds of detours and back and forth. And he gave him Ziklag, which was far south of Jerusalem, down in the Negev. He says, okay, that's where we'll live. That's where I'll put my mighty men, our wives, our kids. We'll, we'll just live there in Ziklag. He'd made a pact with the devil. Did you know during the time of David's running that there's not one single psalm that's attributed to him? All, he'd writ, he wrote many, psalm, many of the psalms, right? We know that. Not one single psalm did he write while on the run. Why? Because when you're on the run, you're usually in compromise. Oh, you don't say you are. You don't think you are. You think you can make it by your own. You think you can kind of just kind of weave in and out and kind of be in and be part of a community like this and then kind of go out and do your own thing and then kind of come back every once in a while and check in and all those kinds of things. Look, you're kind of going to navigate these waters on your own. You, You can do this and you'll find yourself inevitably, and I know because I've experienced it. I'm not telling you this, Mr. Preacher Man, pointing the finger at you. I've experienced this wondering running kind of a season in my life God used it ultimately for my good was no reason for me to do it I paid a heavy price for it as did David but he was on the run look compromise with the enemy always always leads to darkness depression discouragement and an inability to see things as they truly are you get a warped perspective when you're running from from God and his call on your life You'll just see things, and you'll see things as they are not. You'll see things as you want to see them, or as Satan wants you to see them. Are you running this morning? Are you taking revenge this morning? This is your moment. This could be your moment to stop running and say, you know what? God's been telling me to do that for for three years, and I haven't done it. I'm going to do it today. I'm going to make that phone call before I get home today. I'm going to go resolve that issue with my spouse. I'm going to go resolve. I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to ask their forgiveness. I'm tired of being on the run. I'm going to give what God told me to give. I'm going to do what God, I'm going to go where God told me to go. I'm just going to get this right. I'm tired of being on the run. This is David's story. The beauty of this is that God's in the, even in the middle of your running. And he said, Jeff, don't preach that. Because if you, if you talk about God's going to be with you in your running, then what you're saying is, that, you know, that well, people say, okay, then I'll go run. Well, Paul addressed that too. He said, grace, sin, grace abounds where sin is. You know, wherever sin is, grace abounds much more. And then he asked a rhetorical question, what shall we do then, sin? He said, may it never be. How is, how is he who died to sin, how can you still live in it? Of course, God will extend his grace when you're on the run, but guess what? You're, all, you're also at peril, too, because you've made some decisions. But God will intervene with Abigail, and maybe this is your moment. Right in the middle of your running, somehow, some way, God wants to intervene, wants to bring you back, wants to call you back to his people, wants you to get you involved in some kind of missional community, some kind of something where you can thrive and begin to walk out your calling. It's powerful. Lastly, we want to see Psalm, uh, Samuel 28. Uh, we just need to see this brief end to Saul's life. We're not going to see his death. That doesn't happen until a little later. But Samuel had died, and now Saul was desperate because he used to get his insight from Samuel. Samuel's dead now. He has no connection with God. Saul just couldn't. He just didn't have a heart for God. He had no faith. Faith is what connects you with God. Do you understand that? The blood of Jesus and then faith into that is what connects you with the living creator of the universe. That's important to understand. But Samuel was dead, and all Israel, verse 3 through 7, 1 Samuel 28, 
Verse 3 through 7, Samuel was dead and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Saul had removed from the land all those who were mediums and spiritists. Oh, now we're back to that again. What is that? That's just guide. Remember, mediums and spiritists, oh, they're, they're everywhere today, by the way. You can go down and get your palm read. You can do, the occult still is around, not as prevalent as it was during these times, but this was always a place that they ran when they needed some input, some direction, something, and they felt like God had departed from them. And in some ways, God had departed from Saul. Saul had made that choice many years before. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Now, did, see, that didn't happen so much to David. He was always like, this is, uh, this is God versus them. But Saul always like, he was terrified because he had no faith. Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord didn't answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim or prophets. And Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go into her and inquire of her. And his servant said, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. I mean, he, Saul, you can talk about Saul just continues to sink. It's just unbelievable the lengths he will go to to make mistakes and be away from the plans that God ever had for his life. Even though the kingdom had been taken away from him, he just goes from one place to another to another. And now he defies the very core of the Jewish understanding of God, stay far away. You go back to the Levitical law, I mean, stay, Deuteronomy 18, stay far away from these mediums and these spiritists. Don't ever call up the dead or the, or the diviners or any of these. I mean, stay far away from that occultic behavior. Stay far away. Don't look for your answers from that. That's coming straight from the pit of hell. Do you understand that? And, and here's Saul, which, the witch, a witch in his end of his life. I mean, is it sunk to that level, Saul? That your modern day it might be reading my horoscope and reading this and reading that. Just any direction, just anything that I can get. I just want to hold on to just something that I can get some insight to have some understanding of my future because everything feels like it's in chaos and you do everything but reach out to Jesus. Everything. Well, that's where it came. They actually called up Samuel from the dead. Samuel's like, what are you doing? Saul. I mean, it's a, it, quite frankly, it's a strange chapter. It just is. And it's a pathetic chapter. It's a pathetic end to a faithless life. Sometimes you just have to call a spade a spade. It is. Then we, as we press on, I, wanna, I don't want to get to this. It's important. In chapter 29, God steps in to protect David. What had happened now, and this is the close of our morning here, now we're going to see, uh, again, I, I say this every week. Oh, this really impacts me. I cannot believe, this is so impactful. This is a real, I feel that way about every chapter, every word. So just bear with me. If you're part of the church at the Red Door, you said, he said that before. Didn't hadn't he say this last week? Yeah, I said it last week, and I'll probably say it next week. But this is so good right here. This is so good. Wake your neighbor up. Don't let him miss this part. Okay? So... Now he's living, he's living in Ziklag, he's, he's, he's very duplicitous by the way, so he's going out and he's, he, he's starting to hedge his bets, he's starting to say he did this when he really did that, uh, he's going out, he's actually killing the enemies and his 600 men are killing the enemies of Israel, but he'll come back and say, yeah, I'm taking care of our enemies, but well, they weren't really the enemies of the Philistines, they were more the enemies of Israel, but he, so he becomes vague, he, it's very... It's, he won't really tell the truth. David's not telling it. He's not telling it like it is. Let me tell you something. When you're on the run, you start to, you know, you don't want people to know where you are. 
where you've been. You start hiding things. If you're hiding things and you're not transparent, then probably you're in some way on the run. Let me just tell you that. That's what was happening with David. So now they've got this big, they're going to attack. And they're going up towards Aphek and they're, they're going to attack Saul. And eventually there's going to be this great battle and David's going with them. Can you imagine? Now we don't know the end of the story as it might have happened. Would David have actually fought against Saul? I don't think he would have. But somewhere on the way, they're going up there, and the lords of the Philistines turned around, and they, and they asked Achish, they said, why is da- wait a minute, why is he going with us? How do we know we don't get in the middle of this battle and David turn on us, send him back home? We don't want him with us. What are you doing, Achish? Are you crazy? This is the guy that killed our champion, Goliath. What's he doing with us? This could be a plant. Send him home. And Achish turns around, David says, and David's going, have I not been faithful to you? I can't imagine that you would, you know, imagine that I would turn on you. You've been good to me. You gave me a city and all this. And David's sent home like a, like a, now was that God's intervention? You better believe it was. But the story gets worse. Guess what happens when he gets back? Verse 1, Samuel, 1 Samuel 30. Happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on the Ziklag, on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. Now, who was in the city at that moment? Their wives, their children. Now, you, you think Nob was bad. You talk about when you're on the run, when you're running from God and God's doing his, but God's still preparing you. They took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been all taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Can you imagine the scene? Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam and Abigail, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. These were his guys. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. Imagine the scene for a second. David has gone through death and destruction. He's lost his best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan's actually going to die here shortly, uh, later in this battle. He lost his, his Michael. He lost his family he lost his dignity lost his job he lost his this following god business is tough does that mean that you're all going to lose that no but you have to understand that god still is working conformity to the image of his son through all kinds of things that you go through in your life you do understand that don't you and now it's the lowest of the lows of the lows of the possible lows you get as low as you can possibly go now you, because you left town and you followed Achish and you're complicit, guess what? All of your men, all their wives, all their kids, and now you're mighty men. Now the, the ne'er-thee-wells, all the ones that gathered to you when there, nobody else would gather to you, and now you've even lost them and they were talking about stoning him. If there was ever a time for David to just take his own life, it's now. If there was ever a time for David to hit so far on the bottom, just 
just do it, just get it over with, David. Your life could not get any worse at this point. They don't know that their wives and kids are not dead. They don't know that they're not being just, it's horrors. They can't even, can you imagine what they're thinking? These Amalekites, these were rough, brutal, a tribal people who had absolutely no sense, no moral compass whatsoever. God knows what was going through their mind about their wives and their kids, their wives and their kids. So take your life, David. It's over. I mean, you know, I mean, fear is gripping. It's got his, his, his hands around your throat. It's time to just throw in the towel and get it over with, David. And yet, this verse in the Bible has buoyed me through, I cannot tell you how many moments like this, because I remember this verse. It's so stark, so prominent in my mind. And David did what? Strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What does that even mean? What does that mean? Strengthened him. I think, I, I think he just fell to the ground. And rather than pointing an accusatory finger at God, I think he just fell to the ground. And he probably just worshipped and said, God, I, I know I'm just a creation. Lord, I, I, I know I've been on the run. I... I haven't done, I've already made so many mistakes. I mean, people have given their lives because of my mistakes, and, and I, I've just failed you over and over. Father, would you forgive me, Lord? Would, I think there was repentance. I think there was worship. I think there was a heart that just said, Lord, I, it's only you. You just, and somehow he strengthened himself. What do you do when you hit these moments? When those long, cold, clammy fingers come around your neck and say, it's over. You've lost your spouse, you've lost your kids, you've lost your job, you've lost your way. What do you do? At that moment, what do you do? Here's your answer right here. And in Jesus, with the power of the Holy Spirit, you fall to your knees and you worship. You worship. You pray. You seek his face. You say, you could say, you could say, look, from dust I've Come and to dust I'll return, Lord. I, I have nothing to offer. I can't even, I don't even know if I can get up off this ground, but you're still God. You haven't changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know that my future is in your hands. If you know Jesus here this morning, you, you can always say, I know my eternal future is in your hands. I know that you're working all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to his purposes. Lord, I know you live, and I bow before you. What did that look like? I think he got up, he dusted himself off after having spent time with the creator of the universe. And then, of course, God intervenes. A messenger comes. They, they, they start a pursuit. They find a guy along the way that they had, they had left. And they said, I know exactly where they are. And they got, all, they got everybody back. Not one, not one woman was raped. Not one child was hurt. They didn't lose anybody. They got everybody back in the end. But see, David might never have known that if he had taken his own life. Are you at a place this morning of great despair? Get out on your knees. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Worship him. Don't let fear put its cold fingers around your neck. Reach out to the creator of the universe. Fear is a lie, you know. Do you realize that? 
Fear is a lack of faith at its very core. A a true follower of Jesus never has to fear, even in the midst of death, ever. Now, our emotions, our flesh will always respond, but as as a stabilizing influence, let me tell you something, fear should have no power over you whatsoever. No cancer diagnosis, no, no, no divorce that slid under your door one night, spouse wants a divorce. Nothing, nothing should destabilize a person who loves Jesus. That's the inheritance of the saints. No fear. It's a lie. As we close with this worship song, I want you to think deeply. I think it's a powerful song. Fear is absolutely a lie. And then we're going to pray. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you an opportunity just to pray. Just sometimes it helps to be led through. And we're going to look. Do you need to rest here this morning? Have you been seeking revenge? Are you on the run? I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray through that. I want you to, let's worship with this song and then we'll close in prayer.